it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The Team Never Quit podcast is sponsored by Navy Federal Credit Union. Taking small steps now, like opening an IRA or share certificate from Navy Federal Credit Union, could mean big earnings later to help you meet your savings goals. Learn more at NavyFederal.org save. Federally insured by NCUA. The Westwood One Podcast Network. I felt like I was going into battle with an enemy, and cancer was my enemy. There's parts of you that kind of come alive when you're in that. And I don't think most people understand that about team guys or, or their wives. It's not just that we go in under pressure. I heard a man speak a few days ago, which I told you about, and he talks about, oh, the stress and the stress and the stress they're under. And what I don't think most people understand is we thrive under the stress. It's not that we can just carry it. Those can be our finest hours. All right, everybody, welcome back to the TNQ Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luttrell. Every week, it's my job to fire you up, to ignite the legend inside of you, and to push you to your greatness. Join me every week as I take you into my briefing room with some of the most hard-charging people on the planet. They're going to show you how to embrace the suck of life, teach you the values of working your ass off, and charge through whatever life throws at you. This is the Team Never Quit Podcast. Podcast. So buckle up, buttercup. Well, hello there, TNQ Nation. Welcome back to another episode of the Team Never Quit Podcast. My name is Andrew Brockenbush. I'm the producer of the show, joined by Marcus Luttrell and a very special guest today, Melanie Luttrell, Marcus's wife. And we're going to kind of do something different on this episode. And so we figured we'd bring her into the room. She's actually going to lead today's interview. And so we just wanted to uh, welcome her as a part of the team officially on an official episode of the show, I guess. So welcome, Melanie. Hi. Oh, she's unofficially been officially she's, on the show since the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, this is it. This is how this whole thing spun up. So. <laughs> well, like we do every single week, we're going to start with a listener story. And this one comes from Jimmy. A story's called Never Quit, Never Accept a No. And I'm going to jump right into that. My wife and I have been married three years at this point when we found out we were expecting a baby boy. Doctor's appointments after doctor's appointments, her doctor told us a blood test came back positive for a rare chromosome abnormality. We accepted it right away, knowing that we were going to have a special little boy. Months go by of appointment, and her doctor schedules a meeting. She tells us the test came back again, but negative. We were in a way relieved to hear it was a false positive. Again, weeks go by and get a call to say it's positive, and they're 99% sure it's true. Get to the birthday, and everyone's nervous. Doctor can't stop pacing, and the time comes. We were told she had to have a C-section for the safety of the baby. He comes out not crying. He weighed 5 pounds, 5 ounces at 19 inches long. We spent months in the NICU watching our son grow up, not being able to take him home. Four months later, he stabilized, and we were able to finally take him home, but he wasn't eating on his own and needed a pump. One week after being discharged, he stopped breathing, and we rushed him to the hospital. This is the point where we fought and fought until nurses and doctors stopped talking to us or never came around us. There was five trips to the hospital for apnea and collapsed airways, which resulted in doctors telling us, no, he will not survive. What's the point? No, we will not treat your son for the reason that he will not reach his first birthday. 
We never took a no from anyone, and we continued to fight for our son to have the best chance possible to save his life. One year after he was born, he made it to his first birthday. He underwent two surgeries, a feeding pump and a trach, but he was thriving. Next up was eye surgery because he was diagnosed with glaucoma and keyhole syndrome. First surgery failed, the implant came, and his specialist said he wanted to try the other eye. He did fantastic. He came home the same day, and he was able to see who not only who his family was, but who his mom and dad were. He would look around at the trees and smile whenever he heard birds. One year, one month, one day after he came into this world, he was living life as a normal child, smiling and being him. We had a family get together and let everyone hold him as he would get excited to see everyone. We put him to sleep and let him rest as he was worn out from the day. 6 a.m. the next morning, we woke up to him not breathing, not moving, but his vent was still going. We called 911 and rushed him to the hospital where unfortunately our world came crashing down and he passed. We will never forget the joy we had with our son and the smiles he put on our faces. Never take a no when it comes to a situation like this. Although it didn't seem right to some, we now have the privilege to say we had the best son anyone could ask for. Those stories are super hard to hear. But the fact that like you were encouraged enough by his birth that you were willing to take that fight to mm-hmm. the doctors, to the hospital. Oh, well, you under- understand how special he was. Yeah. yeah. And that you enjoy every second you have with him. That's that's the blessing. And like we talk about a little bit, when someone dies, or it's kind of the end for them into a, another beginning but we're, we're the ones that feel that we're the ones that go through that so we're the ones that that, that die around them if you will and um it's tough it's tough to say goodbye to somebody you don't want to but you power through it you do that with each other and the fact that you had that much time with him and you, and you, you never stopped loving him they never gave up on him i think that's the most important part i mean all, through all of it they trusted and god and knew that you know, they had to fight for their son and they did everything that they could. For sure. And they enjoyed that time with him. Thank you so much for sharing your story, Jimmy. Yeah, Jimmy, thank you, brother. All right, guys, it's that time of week again where we share a Patreon question of the day. Melanie, your first time ever getting to join us for one of these. Sean asks, where is your favorite place to visit in Canada and why? I love Canada. Um, I think Vancouver in the fall is one of the prettiest places I've ever seen. I think it's called Stanley Park. I don't know if that's right or not, but it's right on the water. And I remember riding bikes in that park, and I just thought it was gorgeous. And the seafood is really good. Um, But I also love Banff and Lake Louise and all the little lakes around that national park. Uh, Marcus's mom and I went up there a couple years ago for a girls' trip, and it was so incredibly stunning. I've never seen water those colors before we kayaked on it and hiked around rode uh rode horses around the lakes it was so much fun i think canada is definitely one of those countries that doesn't get enough credit for their natural beauty oh yeah and the people yeah montreal quebec what niagara falls is where it's uh on the east coast it's uh right north of buffalo Right? I don't know that's what I was asking. I <laughs> Probably. thought it was close to Canada. I've yeah, only been it, to Canada it's once. in Canada. That's what I thought, right? Yeah, it's like, on oh, the border. Man, we went was... there together. You yeah, had a speaking engagement. Yeah, I had a blast there. It was, it was a good time, man. And yeah. uh, I've been up there a few times as well. It is. The people are great. If you hadn't had a chance to go go up north, you should uh, and, and visit them. I got to go with Hunter. Oh, yeah. On his I forgot. camping trip, his senior mm-hmm. trip, I guess. Yeah. We went to Backpack Glacier National Park. It was birthday trip. It was birthday trip. And they gave us Ryan Reynolds. And we went. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, and uh, you're listening, Ryan. We'll George St. Pierre. Thank you for that. Poutine. Oh, those fries and gravy. That was stupid good. So good. 
There's a, uh, yeah, there are friendly neighbors. Yeah. Sean, thank you so much for asking your question. If you ever thought about asking the host a question on the show, then you probably want to check us out on Patreon. You can get exclusive access to behind the scenes content, exclusive Patreon community where you can support each other and get rare access to Morgan, Marcus, and all of our incredible guests. Join us at patreon.com slash team never quit. There's one thing that I've learned that sharing your story is a powerful thing. There are people out there that need a kick in the ass and your story can be the one thing that changes their life forever. So why don't you take a minute to share your story with us at teamneverquit.com forward slash podcast. Just click on the share your story button in the menu and we can encourage you along the way. Your story just might be shared on one of our upcoming episodes. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. So today we have a special guest on that Melanie's going to be running the interview, uh, someone that is near and dear to us, Tiggs. And uh, Marcus, you want to share a little bit about her? Yeah, she's the wife of one of my uh, my teammates, guy I went through SEAL training with, and um, we were never the same team together, but we were going through buds together, been close for since then, been through a lot of stuff together. I've actually known Tiggs a long time, longer than I've known Melanie, and she's just one of those outgoing spirits that that uh, is infectious. Everything she says, and and um, no matter if she's yelling at you or, or or telling you that she loves you, she's she's a a strong strong woman, California girl, comes from a great family, and has probably one of the hardest never quit stories I've ever heard of. Cause I and I've also, I had to watch her go through it, her her and him, and and through all of it, she just exuded strength, and courage, and commitment, and love, and compassion for what she had to go through. And I, you know, I'm, there are times the physical world to go through, take pain. That's that's pretty easy once you get used to it. And some things they're impossible to get used to, and the test that she and the gauntlet that her and her husband had to go through, definitely something that, uh, and I wouldn't have wished on anybody. But they made it. They made it through it strong. And if you sit, take the time to listen to what this woman has to say, you'll come out stronger on the other end too. Tiggs, thank you for being here, sister. I love you. So today is really special to me because Tiggs was my first team wife friend. Um, Her real name is Amy, but long story, we call her Tiggs. And when I married Marcus, he had retired five years before. So I, I am not, I say this all the time, I'm not a military wife, I'm a veteran's wife. And Tiggs welcomed me into the sisterhood that I did not deserve to be in. And she has always been there for me. And um, I still have this card that she mailed me after the first time we hung out welcoming me into this sisterhood. And it was the most special card that I think I've ever gotten. And I'll, I'll probably start crying. But she didn't make it to our wedding because she was pregnant and having some... She was a couple of months. I was actually pregnant too at my wedding. <laughs> she was a couple of months pregnant, more uh, further along than I was, 
And, um, but her husband made it and I immediately fell in love with him. It was my, uh, first time meeting him, but he, Morgan told me before, uh, I actually met them that they aren't just our friends. They're our family. And I immediately felt it when I met him. And then I got to meet her about a month later. Um, but we were pregnant together twice. and yeah, twice. Um, and I just had to bring her on cause she's in town this weekend and I, I just want you to get to know her cause she's got an incredible story as well. Well, thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about you, um, as first, just about you. Not many people know this, but you're a lawyer. I was in a former life, much, much former life. Yeah. I'm now just a stay at home mom. I work. Twice as many hours. But and you grew up in Cali. I grew up in California. Tell us your... Spit it out. <clears throat> All right. Let's get into it. So I'm in the middle of five. I come from a big Greek-Italian family. Um, I grew up... I was born in Southern California. I grew up in Northern California. So I definitely have a love for both ends of the state. Um, and it's a pretty diverse, huge state. So that's a source of pride for me. I met my husband at Bud's. I was dating a guy, I was really young, and <laughs> I went to go visit him in San Diego, and we were, he was in Buds at the time, and I see this, like, I, I kid you not, this, like, tall, gorgeous man, have I ever told you this story? Mm-hmm. Walk out of the darkness, <laughs> and all I could see were his, like, he's, my husband's 6'5", and he's kind of beautiful, and these blue eyes, and I thought, oh, good Lord. And um, we, but you were dating somebody else. But I was dating somebody else that was in Buds, and and Ben was with someone else. And in fact, I was at Ben's wedding. He got married <clears throat> to his wife. He left, went to the East Coast. We we kind of maintained contact, and um, we always had a friendship connection. And that was really it. I didn't really. Look, he actually drove me crazy. I was like, oh, he's so annoying. So I didn't really think much of it. And he came home divorced and brokenhearted, and his ex had. Um, had an affair and it really crushed him even though they didn't have a great marriage but he's so loyal in that way it really broke his spirit so he began to rebuild himself and in that process I was also rebuilding myself ending my relationship with that same person this is years later and then he left for deployment and came home and called me and said hey I'm going to be in San Diego he's like a code word um and eight hours and I went oh that's nice well, he showed up on my doorstep. He literally didn't have a place to live. His car was in storage. <laughs> he had a storage unit with all his belongings and just showed up on my doorstep. And I opened up my apartment door. I lived in Coronado. And I just went, oh, shit. Like, I just knew. I knew. I was like that. But you were helping him with his divorce. I helped him with his divorce, yeah, because he just – he was operating. He didn't have yeah. time or energy. And he just wanted to be rid of it. He agreed to take on all her debt that she incurred in his name and her name. And um, he just was like, I just want this to be over at this point. And um, so y'all maintained this friendship over the, you know, phone mm-hmm. or through letters or whatever mm-hmm. while he was on deployment and he's going through the divorce. You were legally mm-hmm. helping him. He had an attorney and I was kind of guiding him. I was like the liaison between him and his attorney. I just I didn't want to like give him unnecessary legal advice, but I was also like guiding him what I thought I should what he should do through that process. Um, 
And then during that process, I started to kind of realize, like, well, he's got a lot of class. And mm -hmm. he really was kind of obsessed with the, the name. She had his last name, of course, and he wanted her to change her name back. And I actually had to talk him. At first, I was t in a total agreement. And then after a while, I was like, you know what? Like, that's her right as a – she gets to keep the ring and the name. Like, everything else you can – she doesn't want. And uh, I kind of talked him through that and gave him some healing through that. Um, and in, in so doing kind of found a value that I didn't really even realize that I had through that process, which is pretty cool. So we have this, like, in, I, we could do a whole podcast just on our love story. I mean, <laughs> just the way we met and the, and the things that we've gone through together, how we got engaged in and of itself is a rad, cool yeah, story. Give us a short version he, of He that? tells it the best because he's, I swear Ben has a PhD in storytelling, but basically we went to Greece. Oh, and I should preface this with, we were together for several years, and the only fight we ever got into the first year of our relationship, I think we only fought like four times, was when I had like a little too much to drink and when start basically arguing why we're not married yet. Like, I just <laughs> was like, why aren't we getting married right now? And, but one thing with, I don't know, most team guys I know, and especially bosses, you cannot tell them what to do or push them into a direction that they are not ready to go. And once they are, it's like they go full bore without reservation, without um, doubt. But you can't, like, I cannot tell him what to do. So we go to Greece for a vacation, and it's it's 16 days in, like, the most beautiful landscape on Earth. Have you ever been to Santorini? It's it's the most beautiful place on Earth. I've never been to Santorini. I've been to Mykonos in Athens. It's, one of the, it's the number one destination honeymoon spot in the world. And when you're at the edge of this mountain, you've literally like, oh, this is where Zeus lived. Like, it's so magical. And one night, he had arranged, like, a special dinner. At the We're watching the sunset over what looks like the edge of the Earth. And I'm like, I look adorable. And we're drinking wine and cheese <laughs> and ouzo. And I'm like, this is going to happen. And I'm waiting. And I'm waiting. And then... All like he randomly brought up his ex-wife, which he never, <laughs> whom he never spoke about, and I was like, "Oh, oh no, this isn't gonna happen." And I think he, um, it subconsciously came out because he told me later I wasn't. It, it was too perfect. I wasn't gonna do it in that moment. It was too expected, too perfect. I could tell, you know, and like he, he's all about the element of surprise. So anyway, fast forward towards the end of our vacation, the last day. Um, it was my birthday. I was having m lady cramps and I felt horrible. I was starting to get a migraine. I had a backache. We were driving through Athens in this tiny Fiat rental car and I felt like I was going to die. And boss was loving it because he was just like, there were no like traffic rules. And he's just like, he's practically sitting in the backseat of this tiny car. <laughs> and we're, so we drive out to um, basically ex the exact spot where the battle um happened between the spartans and the persian empire and it's this epic battle i'm not gonna go into the details of it but everyone knows it if you've seen the movie 300 they gave a nice little gist of it but um we wanted to go honor that because in, in our opinion that is like one of the you know greece is the birthplace of democracy but that's also like one of the most epic battles so i felt it in my blood but he also felt it in his heritage being like a warrior so we went out there and it, it's at, it's just a pit stop on the side of like a freeway because it, it was um, at the time the edge of the sea, but the sea's re like it's receded two miles. So you can't even really see the water. 
And then there's a little spot across the highway. If you go, if you just walk up, and I'm telling you, if you're not looking for it, you're just going to drive right by it. And it was called the Hill of Colonos, and that is where the actual like these men died and there's a monument and it's like to all who laid here. And I, I walked up the hill and I see Ben on his, like on his knee and just a humble reverence to these warriors who defied everything. And that is just like the team guy spirit. And they can take down an empire with their, with their will alone, you know? And and so um, I went, Oh, that's really cool. And I thought I was going to pass out. I was in so much pain. I was so tired. I was just like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to pass out. So I sit down and I, I look over and I, I swear I could hear his heart beating. It was so powerful. And I looked at him and went, are you okay? And he went, and he turned to me and he just started to propose. Aww. And he got on one knee and I went, whoa. And I really was not expecting it in that moment. And he he had carried around this antique ring because I wanted an antique. I wanted something different, you know. And it's 80-year-old platinum ring he'd carried that thing around for 16 days all over greece i mean we were going um diving snorkeling we were in the water every day i don't know what he was doing with this ring i don't know where he kept it and i don't know how i didn't notice it that kind of thing and he pulled out the ring and handed it to me and i just started i totally was like i'm never going to be that the girl that cries when i get proposed to i started sobbing and you know our love story kind of like officially began there. But at this point, I had already known the boys. I was already, they Back were like up. my life. Wait. Yeah. So it's the Battle of Thermopylae. Yes. And what did he say to you? Oh, man. He said, I don't even know if I can remember in this moment. I was so, it was four lines of perfect encapsulation. Like, I will promise to love and honor you. And fight for you and always be there for you till the end of my days. And it ended with till the end of my days. And now every time he gives me a card, it's till the end of my days. Aww. And that and that was it. It was four lines. It wasn't some big speech because, uh, you know, he he's really great with words. And that was it. So if you read the – for the listeners out there, if you read the book Service, Marcus's second book, mm. she wrote – Did I write that in This there? story – in a lot more romantic detail. I know. Am I glossing over it right now because I'm nervous? <laughs> um, in this book, there's a chapter in the middle called um, Warrior Queens. And, oh, right. Yes. Yeah. And she she wrote about this whole proposal, and it's so sweet. And I really encourage you to pick up the book and read her testimony in there. Like I said, our, our love story itself could be its own podcast. There's so many details. And he knows Ben has his memory for details like that is great. I feel like I have grief brain. That's yeah. actually what um, Mama Kavner, um, Brad Kavner's mom, told me the other day because I said I have a hard time remembering things, and she said it's grief brain. I went, oh, there's a name to it. So it helps me to actually write things down because then I can remember just how the specific details, which add the layers and the depth and the texture to our lives like come out so yeah but that again that was just the beginning of so much between us yeah so you get married you in san diego what was Mm -hmm. it march of 2010 it was april of 2009 and we had three or four deposits that I lost because every time I put a deposit down, there was a team guy who was like, oh, sorry, I'm going on deployment or, oh, sorry, I have a work trip. And boss refused to get married without his crew. His crew. Mm -hmm. 
And I started to get annoyed, and then finally I was like, oh, forget it. Like, whatever. Whenever we get married at this point, it had been four years since we started dating. So um, so when it happened and when it came together, it was like God's plan. It was perfect. It was the best. It was, to this day, the funnest day of my life, hands down. No, the pictures from the wedding are so beautiful, and I love the video at the reception where you had a choreographed dance. <laughs> I know. Dancing like, is not in my skill set. A choreographed <laughs> dance they had. And it was amazing. To Elvis Presley, no yeah. less. It was amazing. And we just wanted something fun. We Our lives have always been about the people around us. Mm-hmm. So we didn't want a wedding that was just about us. We wanted a wedding that, you know, people could kind of be involved in or be entertained by. And, um. You know, my husband had, what, 11 groomsmen, something like that? Yeah. And, yeah, so um, the wedding itself, I mean, the I end, the let's just put it this way. My wedding night ended at 4 o'clock in the morning in my dress in the hot tub as I look up and I see Ben jumping off uh, the third story of the house that we rented in Coronado butt naked into the pool and I went oh my god this is gonna be my life and he lost his wedding ring McGee found it oh my god. McGee gosh. found his wedding ring twice I was like thank you McGee oh my gosh so um yeah and then the next day was just like this this mad drunk fest with with just you know we were young and that's what we did back then you know and it was just about love and friendship and it was so special it was so beautiful and it was really like God's way of putting people around us to protect us because we would need it. So then you have Amelie. We moved to Virginia, and then we have Amelie. Yeah, I got pregnant real quick. A.K.A. Lulu. Lulu Buns. I mean, she's got a lot of nicknames. Amelie, Amelita, Lita, Lulu, Lulu Buns, Luz, Lou. She has so many. (laughs) Amelie Fira. She was born with the prettiest dark hair (sighs) curls that were just to die for you know some uh ben tells this story where he would be holding her and out front of our house which was like kind of a pathway a walkway a lot of people would come by walking their dogs and people would stop him and ask they would do a double take and go is that a real baby yeah because she looked like a little doll she did yeah Yeah. so do you want to go into her story yeah so boss went on deployment shortly after she was born i mean Mm -hmm. within a few, what, six months, five months? I'm trying to remember. The deployments tend to meld together in my mind. Because um, you came and stayed with us, with her. I say, I, I came to Texas to visit you when she was four months old. Remember you had to coax me into traveling with her? I was so terrified. Yeah, but he was gone. He, was he gone or was he, he with was us? He was gone. Maybe he was on a workup or something, but he was gone. And so you came for a couple weeks. Those six months... From when Amelie was, or six, seven months from January of 2011 until August 6, 2011, were the happiest of my adult life until August 6. It was the best, that was the best time in our entire marriage. Because it was, it was more real, more adult, more, you know, more special. We had her, we were in Virginia away from family. Um, it was, I, I I have a like there's so many happy memories in there that I know are buried and I have to unlock. Um, ben it kind of is the keeper of those memories at this point, but it was really those that time was just so mag- magnificent and special, and mm-hmm. we were spending so much time with Morgan and seeing you guys, and um, 
Uh, and I almost, and there was a part of me that knew, I'm like, this is such a, even when during our time in Coronado, before we moved out there, before we had her, I said, this is too good to be true. This life is too good to be true. And then, you know, then reality set in. So August 6, 2011, most people know it as Extortion 17 happened. Mm-hmm. And Extortion happened to have one of Tiggs and Boss's best friends, one of Marcus and Morgan's best friends. I mean, he was everybody's he best friend. He was everybody's best friend, yeah. JT. Um, and, I mean, and a lot of other friends on the yeah on extortion and it turned all of their worlds upside down it really did i mean that's an understatement like um i I, when i was told the news someone i think it was was a Bo marcus someone called us early in the morning our phones had been ringing but we didn't hear them i didn't believe it i put the i said no i don't believe it i went back to sleep i just i was like no that's like so impossible and then when I woke up and I heard the news, I fell to the floor, not like in a sobbing, dramatic way, but in a like I lost the feeling in my legs type of way. And then I, I lived in a pretty much a fog for the next year and a half. I mean, I don't even know. I couldn't recall. I can only recall moments of those two weeks we spent in Iowa with JT's family before we laid him in the ground. And my mom felt that she had lost a son. And I know Mama... Mar- uh, Morgan and Marx's mom keeps his picture by her bed. I mean, he just, he he was like that to all of us. He just, I remember walking into his funeral and taking a moment and looking around the room. I just was like, I need to take a moment. And there were a thousand people in Iowa in the middle of nowhere. And I thought the reason there are so many people here is because he made so many people feel special. And I haven't had that feeling since, or about anyone else since, um, in that in that kind of deep, heavy, prophetic look back at their life moments, and um, until Amelie, and I had the same feeling. I was like, oh my gosh, same thing. So um, JT was, you know, our everything, and and my I didn't even realize I'm still realizing it to this day just how important JT was to Ben because Ben didn't have like a he wasn't given like a proper moral code growing up and he didn't he was longing and searching for something his whole life and he found that in JT and the brotherhood and you know all the you know all the guys in the brotherhood but JT was kind of like the top of it for us so Mm -hmm. I know for me the first time I ever met JT was the first day that I met Morgan Oh my gosh! No way. And oh. Morgan was they they had just well Morgan had just come home from deployment, mm-hmm. and Marcus and JT went to pick him up, and then they drove like the next day they drove and Jimmy May was there. Jimmy May, yeah, and um, they drove up to DC where I had Hunter that was twelve. Gulab, Gulab that's in right. full Afghani gear. Oh, that's right. And security and a translator. Mind you, I wasn't married yet. I wasn't even engaged yet. Um, so <laughs> it was a very strange time for me. Um, but Morgan was very. Um, he had like he was going to give me the test. You know, oh yeah, girl. We were all going to give you that test, not just Morgan. But yeah, he so, was the 
ultimate. Oh, yeah. So he wasn't, like, super nice. <laughs> oh. <laughs> not, but um, JT was. And he mm. could see that I was very uncomfortable. And um, and that this was obviously a very odd situation for me. Mm-hmm. And he made me feel so welcomed mm-hmm. and and also think about hunter in this he was 12 years old his mom just moved in with this guy <laughs> you know it was just such a whirlwind for him as well and you know and then here's gulab and security and you know it was just such a crazy whirlwind for us and hunter felt very uncomfortable as well and jt just took him mm. alone and and they went and walked around the monuments and he taught hunter like what certain things mean on different monuments if a horse's right foot is upright what that means and the significance of all the monuments mm-hmm. and it was just really and it was a defining moment for hunter like this is a this is a family yeah. and, and he made he made us feel like that mm-hmm. um and i have pictures from that day and anyway jt was very special i clearly do not have the connection that everybody else did i know but community. i'm so glad you got to meet him but i got to meet him and i got to so know great. him um for less than a year but he, it's hard to understand who we are who morgan yeah. is who marcus is who jimmy may is who mcgee and all that if without knowing jt mm-hmm. because he is so a part of all of us yeah he's yeah. he was a very very special he really he he really he will always be and his family is special yeah his mother is um a truly incredible human being and when she passed away there was there was i felt such a peace for her Mm -hmm. because when her only son died i just i couldn't even comprehend it at the time Mm -hmm. i was kind of self-absorbed in my own grief yeah um but looking back on the dignity and grace that she had and how she you know, in those moments, and this is why I love our community so much, like she realized that she didn't just, you know, quote unquote, lose a son, but she had many sons, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it should be noted, though, I think we should put this out there that like we put a lot of <laughs> girlfriends and wives through the ringer, through the test of our approval. Yeah. You know, it, we um, we were a little unfair to some. Some we were completely justified in being like, no, this isn't going to work. You're not going to work fit yeah. into this family. Because we were so fiercely protective of each I other. I got a huge test, but I passed. You really did. And I remember Morgan's stamp of approval. And I was like, whoa. I remember being, I was like, she must be pretty special. But I'm still going to mm-hmm. put her through the ringer. That lasted all of 30 seconds. I just like, I think we both know that when we met, it was like instant and I, I um, you know, take issue with you saying that I invited you into a sisterhood with which you do not, did not feel you belonged or had were worthy of being invited to. I take issue with that because, and I've said this from the beginning, you know, serve, the life of service is that of a team wife. And I don't think anyone embodies that more than you do. And in fact, you're able to do things that a lot of us simply can't for our own community because we're in the thick of the or we were, I mean, obviously Ben just retired for me, but we were in the thick of operating. And when you do that, man, it is like about, it's insular and it's it's about survival and moving forward and doing it the best you can. So you're able to come in and kind of be this light and this angel 
and this um, kind of this model of grace and selflessness that we, you know, the wives are, but we're kind of do that to our own family and our own husbands, and you did it for everyone else. So to me, you're the embodiment of the sisterhood, not an exception or, you know, um, a special case too. And so when I when I talk about you and I know you make a distinction between a military wife and a veteran's wife, and I don't, I think the distinction is really just well, one of temporary kind of logistics. What's the difference? I'm, I'm going to say I'm a military wife, even though Ben's retired. I just, well, but you are. Yeah. You went through. You were with him through the whole thing. I never had to do a deployment. I never. No, but Marcus being on the road 300 days a year telling his story of service is kind of like a deployment. But he wasn't getting shot at. That's true. Not uh, not literally. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, it, it's clearly, I know I'm very clear-headed, the difference. And yeah. I'm okay. I mean, I'm I'm okay with that, um, but I, I don't want to take anything away from women like you and all the others that have been through the military, the active military yeah. side of it. No, and I get that, and I and I recognize that, but I also think that um, that just goes to show just how much how much awareness you have for the idiosyncrasies of this life, which most Americans, I don't think have and that's okay you know like we don't do this so to educate america we do this because we're called to mm-hmm. and if we happen to educate people along the way then it's an honor and my duty but you know being a military wife is a special thing man and it's not easy um but you choose it right and it chooses you well i love you and i love, I love all the you. other wives that i've met um so we can't not talk about Amelie. Yeah. I know you're avoiding that. No, I know. How can you tell? <laughs> can go on an hour-long tangent in a completely different direction. Okay. So for me, I'm just going to bring my side of this in. Axe was born shortly after Amelie. Mm-hmm, about four months. Four months. Mm-hmm. And um, right about that time, well, no, four months later, I got pregnant again. Mm-hmm. I was so excited because we were trying already. <laughs> I was not and excited and I was I not trying. I called Tiggs <laughs> and I was so excited. I was like, guess what? She says, what? I said, I'm pregnant. And she starts crying and she says, I am too. <laughs> <laughs> so we were pregnant together um, Y'all, both times. Pissed. Okay, let's not sugarcoat it. I wish I could say that I was so happy. Oh, I was my like, gosh. How did this even happen? I was so excited. And and then I was so excited that we were going to have our babies so close together. You were praying for twins. Well, I, I really, Marcus and Morgan obviously have this very close relationship. And he, Marcus really wanted twins. So mm-hmm. I just, I wanted our babies close together so they could be like that. that. Yeah. So Brave and Addie are four days apart. Mm-hmm. Let's just put that out there even though our due dates were almost i think over a month apart yeah Yeah. but um they're four days apart so we uh we got the the close babies like we wanted and um through that process i mean y'all had a lot going on in the teams and different things and um and you moved back to san diego and you moved to auburn for a little while there was a lot going on Mm -hmm. and in that I remember getting updates from you that, um, like, Amelie had the... Uh, 
She had 22Q. She had like the cleft palate. She was going through Mm -hmm. a lot. She had the cleft palate, which was prohibiting her from being able to articulate speech. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To, um, and so you were going through a lot as a mom, Mm -hmm. um, dealing with all of this. And I remember being on my knees, just praying that she's going to be okay. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we didn't know what 22 Q was at first. You know, there was all these different speculations before that too. Mm -hmm. Like the doctors, I think had thrown out a couple of other possibilities of what it was. Some scary possibilities, which thankfully were false. Right. right. Um, and then, um, I will never forget the day and I'm going to cry, but, um, I was actually pulling out of our driveway and you text me and said, Amelie isn't feeling well. And you said Amelie. And normally you would say Lulu, Lulu or one of her nicknames. And you said, Amelie isn't feeling well. Um, can you please say a prayer for her? She hasn't eaten. And I think it was a week is what the text said. And she's had a fever for a few days. And I remember my gut just dropping. Like, what is that? And I had been through um, – my little sister had – a crazy fluke um, sickness when she was 13. Yeah. And that was one of her symptoms, um, not eating, vomiting, and fever. Mm -hmm. And so I just remember thinking, gosh, I hope it's not that, because my little sister had to have open-heart surgery. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was such a scary thing, and it's through the grace of God that she's – that my little sister's alive, Mm -hmm. and not very many kids survive that. And so that was my first – instinct with that it was some sort of infection yeah, to an organ right. and um <laughs> i wish so then a couple days go by and you i think you called me and said i've been in this emergency room for four hours or whatever and you're venting and then you text me and said okay we've been in here for nine hours and she just had a seizure so she's going in for an mri and do I have that timeline about Yeah, we right? were in the ER for about nine hours, mm-hmm. and we had no idea what was going on. We were kind of just sitting there and in a limbo deciding what to do, and then all of a sudden she had a seizure. Which indicated that it was something to do with the brain. Absolutely. So they do the scan, and they saw that she had a tumor. Massive tumor. On her brain. Yeah, she was diagnosed um, shortly thereafter with stage four metastatic penioblastoma brain tumor cancer. So, um, which is pretty rare. It's very, very rare, and it is very aggressive. Mm-hmm. So when you get a diagnosis like that, your kind of heart heart sinks, especially with a metastatic, because without if it weren't metastatic, meaning metastatic meaning it was spread down her spine, uh, the chances of curing it, you know, go up. But with that, they went from like sixty percent curable to about five ten percent curable. So the next day. I flew out to San Did you? Diego. See, I lo- actually love talking about this stuff because I don't remember any of this. So yeah. It's so nice for me. And to you had so many people come to the hospital and we did a prayer circle outside the hospital and just set up. I literally flew out there to pray. Did you? Yeah. And oh I flew God. home that afternoon. You are an angel. Um, <laughs> but I remember this because there were so many people like at the drop of a hat they just showed up and they were going to pray over her because Amelie was a light and she, you just couldn't think of her being sick. 
Yeah. And so we just, you know, wanted her to feel that light from other people praying for her. And then it felt like, for me as an outsider, Hmm. that things were getting better. There was always almost good news from the doctor. Yeah, it was a beautiful progression of let's just get it done and get it done. And the hard work seemed to be paying off. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then she had like the, she had like a small surgery where they were going to remove. She had so many surgeries. She had um. So the reason she was having those symptoms was because she had hydrocephalus, which is uh, fluid swelling in the brain. So the tumor um, was getting bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. And then um, and the cancer cells just, you know, kind of disrupting the brain. So she had, um, oh, man, she had, a, she had shunt surgery. She had a tumor resection surgery. And then she had actually multiple surgeries because they put a little plastic they had to cut out a part of her skull and they put a little plastic piece and then that piece, or no, no, they cut out her skull, put the skull back in, but then that got infected. So then they took that out and then they were going to put a plastic piece in. And so there were so many surgeries, but she did, her first main surgery was the tumor resection surgery and it went well. They didn't get all the tumor, unfortunately, but they said, wow, we got a lot out. Um, we were very impressed and it was, it was a kind of a, it was good news. It was a hopeful. It, it was, was a it was good so news. hopeful, very positive. And she woke up from the surgery because the, the the scary part with that surgery was because of the location of the tumor being on the pineal gland, like it affects major bodily functions. What you know, breathing is one of them, right? So you hit the wrong vein nerve, you could bleed out and die. She could stop breathing. Um, and she was four. She was four years old when she was diagnosed. Um, and it it should be noted that. She was di- well. She was diagnosed on August nineteenth, which is the same day, um, four years previous that we laid JT in the ground. Mm-hmm. So August nineteenth was always a hard day for us, anyway. So anyway, um, so she had tumor resection surgery, and um, I, we all came together. Um, there, I think there were like seventy, hundred people at the hospital. Yeah, it was amazing, and uh, we were just hoping she would wake up. I mean, at that point, it was like, okay, let's just focus on her waking up from surgery, let alone just beating cancer. And I'll never forget, she woke up from surgery, and the first words she said were, where's my iPad? She wanted her <laughs> iPad. And I was like, give her her iPad. Give her anything she wants. <laughs> and, it's, and we have this picture of, of um, I fell asleep, like, in the chair, slumped over on the bed because I was just just totally exhausted, and she had made it, and I could rest. So she she had surgery, then she had um, proton radiation, which is like the kind of the beam radiation, um, every day, five days a week for six weeks, um, wherein she was sedated via IV. Oh, she had a port surgery, so she had a port. And that was tough because she hated her, having her port accessed with the needle, and there was a lot of screaming. She lost her hair after the first week, and it would coming out in clumps, and she had no idea what the hell was happening. She loved her short hair. We had to cut her hair because it got so knotted up from all the all the blood and the iodine and the, and the laying in bed. We had to cut her hair. She loved her short hair. She used to say, I have short hair like grandfather. <laughs> grandfather. She loved it. And so then when her hair started to fall out, that was tough. And then the nausea and the vomiting. And, um, and then it was during that time that Ben just started to very rapidly go downhill mm-hmm. he went into a very dark place which is totally understandable i mean mm-hmm. parents going through the i mean it's 
someone that doesn't go through it can't even imagine what mm-hmm, that's like. Mm-hmm. So we can't judge. Like I, when I would see him, I just wanted to give him a hug because you could tell that life was slipping out of him. Yeah, he was he was encapsulated by darkness and hopelessness mm-hmm. and anger and hurt and confusion and most importantly for a team guy that is lack of control. Mm-hmm. They are masters of uh, controlling their environment. Mm-hmm. And he is, he and Amelie, it should also be noted, were soulmates. I mean, they were, uh, they were, he, she is the great love of his life. Mm-hmm. I remember after she was born, because, um, you know, Boss adored me above all, all everyone else. And that was always like, okay, well, I, can, I can enter this life if I'm adored this much by him. Okay, I can do this, right? And I'll never forget it. A couple of days after she was born, uh, first of all, the the minute she was born, they made eye contact, <laughs> and I was like, "What's happening here?" <laughs> and in the hormone dumping, the few days after her birth, I was like sobbing and crying. And he was like, "What's wrong, Biddies? What's wrong?" And I was like, "You're never gonna love me as much as you love her." Aww. And he didn't deny it at all. He just went. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but you'll be my you'll be my next favorite girl. Like I, uh, you know, crying and sobbing because I just I knew they were they were absolutely connected. Just like she was connected with my mom. Like she and my mom were soulmates too. And he sent so. out this beautiful email that I still have. Did he? When it was a few days after she was born, and it just described like the whole. You going in the labor process and I'm telling the you, he's got a PhD process. in storytelling. He, girl. It's this long <laughs> email that he sent. It's a mass email to all of y'all's loved ones. And um, did he talk about how I was like putting on makeup? And I think you were trying to sweep or something. And I was like shaving yeah. and like. <laughs> it goes into this long thing, but he, the way he described her, like the way the detail he put into her curls and everything, it was you could tell just from that email that he was in love with his daughter. And he, like I said earlier, he's the kind of the the memory keeper Mm -hmm. for me right now. But yeah, so just to fast forward, you know, back to um, this part of the story and the the radiation was tough, but I was just, I was like, I was a, you know, Ben kept telling me like, you're the warrior queen. I was in like, let's Let's do this. I felt like I was going into battle with a, with an enemy, and cancer mm-hmm. was my enemy. So I was, um, you know, there's parts of you that kind of come alive when you're in that. And I don't think most people understand that about team guys or, or their wives. It's not just that we go in, under pressure. I heard a man speak a few days ago, which I told you about, and he talks about, oh, the stress and the stress and the stress they're under. And what I don't think most people understand is we thrive under the stress. It's not that we can just carry it. We actually can, those can be our finest hours. But, you know, going back to Ben kind of slipping into that, you know, I had slipped into that when we lost JT. And then when she got diagnosed on August 19th, I sat outside by myself and I kind of, I didn't really ask God why a whole bunch during that time. I, I don't know. I just didn't. Maybe it was because I knew it wasn't helpful um, and it wasn't productive and it wasn't going to get me where I wanted to go. It didn't matter. We had it. Let's figure it out. But in that moment when she was diagnosed, I was like, why? Why did why are you putting me through all this? And all the all the drama that we had gone through surrounding um extortion and moving and Ben's PTS and his TBI and all that, it made sense in an instant. And I just looked at God, I pointed my finger up to the sky and I went, Roger that. Mm-hmm. I get it now why you put me through that, because I needed to grow up 
and learn the skills in order to fight the real enemy right now, which is cancer. So Ben and I had switched. So I felt like during JT's death and shortly thereafter, he he oh he was the one who kept the family together, right? And then when Amelie got sick, I was that I was now tasked with that. And um, but I, I to sit here and even use the I word to me feels wrong because it was really the people around me mm-hmm. that in, even enabled me to do that. Well, even like your mom and your sister. My mom quit and, her job and uh, quit whatever she was doing and came down, practically moved in with us Yeah, to be with her. I had people praying. I had people showing up. I had the Navy SEAL Foundation, the Navy SEAL Family Foundation. That's how Cindy Axelson and I became close because – and Christian Grenier, there was a woman sitting outside the ICU with a basket of stuff. She'd been there for a while. And I went, can I help you? I'd walked out. She said, my name is Christian Grenier. I'm with the Navy SEAL Family Foundation. This is for you. You call me when you're ready. I'm like, Okay. I, hadn't, I just couldn't even comprehend all the help. And Andrea Gallagher was my, like, point man on that. Mm-hmm. And she was the spearhead, the person. She was like, you're going to start a GoFundMe. I'm like, why do I need a, I don't need a, why do I need a GoFundMe account? What do I need money for? And she just, I remember her laughing, like, you fool. <laughs> of course mm-hmm. she will. She was totally right. And um, that was the first time I ever got to know her. I had lunch with her when I went to the hospital for one of the prayer circles. Um and I think it was her and Char. Mary and, Bloom, probably. Um, and Renee, I think. We all went to lunch afterwards, mm-hmm. but that was the first time I got to know Andrea. Talk about a light. She had mm-hmm. a she had a light that during that time. She was my light in the darkness. Um, and she was kind of my the 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 top of the, the sisterhood at that moment. Just because that that's when she, I talk about thriving under pressure. So, um, but all the team wives, man, that was it was so redemptive for me. Um, cause I didn't have a good experience with that in the Virginia and I felt so misunderstood. I just like the harder I tried to be understood, the more, the worse it got. And, um, when I went, finally went back to the West coast, it, I was just like kind of understood even the team wives who were no longer like active military, like divorced or retired. They, they, they all came out of the woodworks to be there for me. So, uh, so we had Christmas and then, um, a few days after Christmas, before the new year, we started chemo seven months of chemo and she got more radiation than like a grown man with prostate. She got as much radiation as a human body could allow. Like that's how hard we had to hit this tumor. And we got the news around Christmas time that it looked like the radiation had melted that tumor away. But because there was still cancer visible in her spine, we were going to continue with chemo and this cancer comes back. So we started seven months of chemo, um, and the hospital stays and the doctor's appointments. And one of the things that – so Lulu was born with 22Q deletion, which is uh, used to be called DeGeorge syndrome. And there's a couple of, you know, a, a whole slew of symptoms. But her symptoms, besides her submucosal cleft palate, which she needed surgery for, um, was a hypersensitivity to things like poking, pinching, bandages, needles – um feeding tube feed, oh gosh it, it, it drove her to the the worst place and um we to to in, watch her endure that just a finger prick just to get a finger prick of blood would be a half an hour of screaming and crying and consoling and let's work through this and we're gonna pray and i'm gonna use every psychological tactic i can to get her through this and so ben who wasn't 
totally needed it for those appointments became he was he felt anyway ineffectual ineffective and like just unimportant and that's like the worst thing for him for Mm -hmm. a man too like to feel that he doesn't have purpose in his mm-hmm. family i mean he he did but it wasn't what he was used to and everything just shifts well and she got to a point that she wasn't res- like physically responsive well so what happened was we had finished chemo she needed a break her body started to deteriorate and decline she was having neuropathy the vomiting was intense she at this point had a um, g2 put in for feeding um, and she'd be, she would show other kids that would come to the house because they would stare at it. And she'd be like, this is my G-tube. Look. And she'd spin it around and say, this is my shunt. She couldn't say shunt. So she'd this is my shunt. Uh-huh. This is my scars. And then her hair started to grow back. So we had the summer off from treatment. They said, looks like it's responsive. There's still some kind of highlighting that's coming up on her spine, but we're not sure if that's post-treatment edema or cancer. So what we're going to do is going to take her break. Summer off. We went home to Auburn. Um, which was one of her happy places, which is where my parents live in Northern California. And um, we just wanted to take a break from treatment and start to rebuild her because she was so extremely traumatized psychologically. I knew that that was the next kind of battle. And during that summer, Ben had a total nervous breakdown. I don't even know what you call it. It's not a nervous breakdown, but he he, he just he had, couldn't even handle it anymore. And we had that to deal with. It was a crisis situation. And I I believe during that time, he was absolutely on the verge of suicide. There were times where I would leave the house with uh, Ben and Amelie there. And I, I hesitate to even share this, but it is the truth. And, you know, I'm all about being authentic. I would drive away and I remember backing up, looking at the house going, I wonder if they're going to be alive when I get home. Is mm. he going to shoot her and shoot himself to end this suffering? And when I told him that, he said, well, then why did you leave? And I said, because if you were going to do that, it was going to happen no matter what. And I knew that when you were alone with her, you were actually happiest. And so I had to leave the house a lot more than I wanted. I had to, I had to leave her. I had to go off with friends. I had to go get pedicures. I had to go work out. And people were all kind of, I know, judge that. And they go, man, you sure took off. When your daughter was sick, I was like, yeah, because I had to leave. I had to extricate myself from the situation so that my husband could survive it. And that's selflessness, not selfishness. And it takes a lot for me in this. This is why I don't like talking about it. It's just this section. Because people don't understand it. And at the same time, I have to continually work to forgive myself for it because... The devil comes into my brain, man, and he says, like, you're a horrible mother and you left her all the time. And it's like, no, man, I left her to protect her and to protect Brave and to give Ben what he needed, which was that connection with his daughter, which was broken because there were so many people around. And when you're in suffering like that, you either isolate or you surround yourself with people. I haven't seen people do one or the other. I have seen the extremes played out in in moments of intense suffering. And I was surround myself with people because I knew that was going to be the thing. And his was isolate. It's not like you were leaving all the time. You would just take time for yourself. I took a lot of breaks. Yeah. But when she needed her feeding tube cleaned out or, you know, whatever it was, you were always there to do all of those things. I was. I mean, I was there. And my mom was there. And my mom was an extension of me. And she needed her alone time with Amelie, and I knew I had to give her that too. 
And I had um, a son. Let's not forget bravery during this whole thing. He, I had um, some people come up to me and say, don't just assume that he's okay. Because we had, you know, siblings with either special needs or mental illness who, who got sick and we got overlooked and we were not okay. And so I thought, well, I have a son that is going to need just as much as me, just as much from me as my daughter. And Amelie's got people that can care for her. And and so I, I spent a lot of time with him, caring for him, taking him places, buying him toys, laying with him at night. Make, and so we, we switched. It was a 50-50. And I had a friend tell me at one point, she said, I don't know how you did that. And I said, what do you mean? She said, how did you leave Amelie at all? I would have been the mom that never left the hospital. And she was asking me out of curiosity and I think um, admiration. And all I took it as was shame and uh, mistake that I had made. So through therapy and a lot of prayer and a lot of, you know, talking to friends to constantly remind me, I, I had I have to remember what really happened. And what really happened was I could leave her with people that I trusted. That is a gift. Most of those moms don't want to let go of control. And one of the things that Ben said to me in a marriage workshop a couple years later was, I love that you gave up a lot of control as a mother and gave me a role to be a hands-on father. And I did that early on. Um, and another thing, I, I took a moment when I was at the hospital and I looked around at the moms who never left their children's side and they looked like shit, man. They, they were pale. Their eyes were sunken in. Their hair looked like, like it was frizzy and falling out. They were overweight. They were malnourished. And I went, man, I don't thrive when I'm like that. I'm not going to be happy when I'm like, I'm not going to give her joy when I'm like that. I need to go work out. I need to go have a lunch with a girlfriend to give me some perspective and set me back on the path. I need to, um, if it's a girlfriend's birthday dinner, go to her birthday dinner for an hour and then go to the hospital or things like that. So that way, when I am at the hospital, man, I could be present. I could be on. I could be joyful. I could be laughing. I could look great. I could feel great. And that positivity could be, Amelie could absorb. I didn't want to be some selfless martyr. And also, I wasn't, I needed sometimes to remove myself from my own sanity because the people, we were all driving each other nuts. And Ben and I would just get at each other. Like she doesn't need that. There was there was no negative talk in her room allowed because mm-hmm. I believe it becomes real, you know. So that summer, we were a break from treatment, and Ben was at the darkest place, and I thought, well, this is it. And I had always expected to lose my husband in the battlefield. I really did. And I thought, well, this is when I lose my husband. So if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. I mean, I did everything. I called people to come be around him. I called in. I went and took him to lunch. Did you take him to? I called everybody I could. (laughs) I did. I I was frantically trying to keep him from being alone. And there were only certain people that he would be around. The fact that he even went to lunch with you shows Mm -hmm. just how much he loves you because he was saying no to everybody. I called the command. I called our chaplain. I mean, I was reaching for help. And... A few months before that, he was forced against his will to go to a Mighty Oaks, which is this men's Christian organization that that reaches out to uh, veterans and first responders. And their their motto is, you've tried everything else and none of it's worked. Why not try? Just try this. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a Christian-based program. Um, 
It's not a retreat, okay? They used to call it fight club because they say they're like you're fighting for your life right now. Mm-hmm. And he was forced to go to that because he was destroying not only himself but everyone around him. And we were all kind of going down on this ship. And um, it changed his life. And on Father's Day of that year, he was baptized in the Pacific Ocean in front of Amelie and Bravery. This is beautiful. So that summer, but at that point, you know, when you go through that, your defense mechanisms are broken down. And so this lovely little um, metaphorical house that he constructed around himself, which was, you know, bullshit, which was founded not on, on, on quicksand, on not like a bedrock of foundation, collapsed because it had to it has to in order to rebuild yourself you have to break down the self and it is the most terrifying thing that a person can do um well it came crashing down and he it was just it was awful um but i needed to extricate amelie at this point from that and so i went back to auburn and um spent as much time there as we could and it was magical and it was beautiful and then um school started september came and it was the first day of kindergarten and from infancy from about 18 months old the whole thing when we first got her diagnosis it was let's get her to kindergarten let's get her to let's just get her to kindergarten let's get her up to date with her peers or get her treatment and speech therapies and all those things well we had made it not not even in 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 spite of 22q but in spite of brain cancer motherfucker we had made it (laughs) sorry can i cuss yeah oh gosh so it was awesome it was the best first week of school ever, and I don't think a parent will ever be more grateful of having their child attend a public school than I was in that moment. It was magical, you guys. She was Her hair started to grow back a little bit. She had some eyelashes, and she had some spotty eyebrows, and... We had to leave every day around noon, noon thirty, lunchtime, because she couldn't, she didn't have the energy. Because you know, chemo lasts for a long time, and she would fatigue easily. And the school started early, so we were getting up early. And Amelie is like her mama, and she loved to sleep in. So getting her up at six thirty in the morning to get to school by seven thirty, like that wasn't that cool. And um, she would fatigue. So we left every day at noon, but it was. And I was with her, and I, I said to, uh, I think it was either Andrea Gallagher or, or Schimmel, someone, I said, well, this is the next battle, getting her, you know, the, is the school system and getting her the services she needed. And at the end of that beautiful first week, um, she had a stroke. And I'll, I'll never forget during that week, too, I had to access her port, and one of the things that, you know, the tactics I used, I said, okay, we're going to take a deep breath. Okay, take a deep breath. Take a deep breath, Amelita. Okay, take a deep breath. And um, and she sounded just like that. She did. Of her uh, cleft palate. And she had a super high-pitched voice. It, she, I mean, Tiggs is mimicking her. I'm the only one who can do her it. Her voice, yeah. exactly. It's exactly how she sounded. Yeah, and, and kids would... I would forget that it was a different voice until we'd be at school and the kids would go, why did she talk funny? Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, because she's, she's, this is what mermaids and fairies sound like. So, yeah, I had to come up with something. I don't know. Instead of yell at a five-year-old, I had to come up with something creative and positive. And um, she had such a special voice. And um, there was one time during that week I was accessing her port to give her her meds. 
And I said, okay, take a deep breath. And you take a deep breath. I said, I want you to go to your happy place. Where's your happy place? And for a really long time, her happy place was at the beach with daddy. At the beach with daddy. <laughs> at the beach with daddy. And so I said, where's your happy place? And she said, at school with my friends. Aww. At school with my friends. And, and she didn't even have any, like, she didn't even have any friends. She, those, those kids were new. And um, I, I had to walk out of the room after that and just collapse and cry and just say, thank you, God. Like, she's got something now. We've got something. That's all we need, you know? We got a peg that we can cling to. But at the end of that first week, she had a stroke. And I'll never forget in that moment, I had to spend with her all day. Okay, so I was... I was I was spent. I was exhausted because she she still was traumatized. She would scream a lot. She was I had you know, she would trip, but I remember pushing her on the swings and her whole body kind of had a little micro shake and a collapse and I went, "What was that?" It was real subtle, man. If your hands weren't on, but I she almost fell off the swing. So I was like, "What was that?" And I just thought, "Okay, she's just still figuring out her strength and the, the chemo." So by the end of the day, I was it was like 4 or 5 6, I don't know. I was exhausted. I just wanted to lay down and have some silence. And Ben and Brave were in the garage making all kinds of racket. And she was going into her bed. And she was screaming. And I was like, what, Amelie? What, honey? What do you need? Right, you know? And I'll never... I, I, it will take me years to forgive myself for that. Because her legs stopped working. She couldn't climb up into her bed. Because her brain was fucking shutting off. And I, I heard this weird, like, Meh! and I went, what the hell was that? And I went into her bedroom and I picked, and I was like, stand up, stand up. And she just kept falling down, falling down. And I was like, okay. And I picked her up and I took her to the garage and I went, and I was like, be calm, be calm. So what I was planning to say was, um, boss, could you come here? But instead what came out of my mouth was, boss, like this crazy person. <laughs> And he always tells me I overreact. I'm like, someone's breaking into the house. He's like, oh my God, you're you're crazy. You're overreacting. I'm slightly dramatic in case you can't tell. And I thought he was going to say that to me. And he held her in his arms and he looked at me and he said, get her bag. We're going to the ER right now. And that's huge for men because he's like ER last resort type of guy. And we, and we yelled at one of the neighbors whom we happened to see in the driveway and like, can you stay here with bravery? And we got in the car and we leave. And I should have brought Bravery with me because that traumatized Bravery. We just abandoned him with some random male stranger. He's a stranger. He was a neighbor and he was an amazing human being. And we love him. And we still talk to him. And But in his mind, right. at, the at the moment, and it actually took like a year of therapy to undo that just for Brave. That one moment. We go to the hospital and in the car... I mean, there's so many details. This, these are the details I remember. I don't remember the details of the happy memories. I remember the details of the trauma. That's also how the human brain works, so I understand that. But I'm working to unlock that. She was just moaning. And that was really the last day I heard her speak normally. So she was having these seizures. And I kept telling the people in the ER because I didn't know what was going on. I was like, I'm telling you, this is bad. And by that night, she was intubated, intubated in the ICU. Um, and they didn't, they didn't think it was cancer. They did all these treatments, brain scans and brain scans and brain scans and MRIs and CAT scans. And they said, we don't really think this is cancer. We don't really know what it is. Some sort of bark kind of stroke. And basically in layman's terms, her brain just couldn't handle the invasiveness of all the treatments and started to just shut down. 
So when we finally got the tube out, she could raise her thumb. She could talk like someone who had had a stroke. She had already had a speech delay. Talk about a form of torture. So that began the 10-month-long process of her slipping into a bedridden state. And her voice, which was so special, so unique about her, um, was gone. Her cute little run was gone. Her distinctive, notable, long curls, you know, that was all gone. And month by month, she just kind of slipped farther and farther down. Now, I want to say, I never during this time doubted that she would make a full recovery. My whole thing was like, whatever, man, we'll put, we'll put her in PT and OT and speech and we're going to rock this out. I had uh, music therapists come. I had um, Reiki people come into the, the hospital. And during this time, Ben was supposed to retire. He had no retirement plan. He just, all he wanted was out. He just wanted to be out of the military. He was just so burdened by, by, I think he wanted out of a lot of things. Like he just wanted to be done with it. And thank God there were people who never stopped believing in him and they protected him. And I believe it was Admiral Szymanski who said, you know what? You're going to extend for two years. His daughter was inpatient in the hospital. How do you let a guy retire with TRICARE, your hospital coverage stays are 100% covered. When you retire, they go to 80%. We were getting $150,000 bills a month. Can you imagine 80, paying 20% of that a month for the next 10 months? We'd be bankrupt for, for years. And not just that. He had no job. He hadn't started filing for VA. He, he had nothing was done. Um, and... We got so unbelievable. It saved his life. It saved our life. It saved Amelie's life. At one point, TRICARE, because they didn't have a diagnosis and they didn't know what was going on, wanted to send her home. And they're like, okay, well, we're going to cover one more week and then you got to send her home. And I went, cover one more week. She isn't speaking. And, and I don't have a wheel. I don't own a wheelchair. I don't have equipment. That was another battle. I had about, a, about three days of pure hell that I had to handle alone. And I remember sitting with this doctor and I said, you need to craft a, diagnose, a diagnosis that's truthful and within your you know, code of ethics, of course, but that warrants her to stay here in the hospital because we are being kicked out. And I'm telling you right now, it, this is not, uh, not going to work. And I had to have a full-on come-to-Jesus moment with her. I said, you are going to look back. She wouldn't do it. I said, you're going to look back in your life and there are going to be moments where you actually did something powerful and worthy and courageous and bold. And I said, be fucking brave right now. Use that smart brain of yours and make it happen now. I said, be a part of something that's really going to change a family's life. And I like slammed something down. I said, and I don't want to fucking talk to you until it's done. By the end of the day, it was done. No. So I'm, I'm grateful to that doctor that she found the courage within her. And it was done legally and it was done ethically and it was, it was done well and it was done right. Otherwise, we would have been sent home. Yeah. With a, a, uh, she was still a, 
mainly paraplegic daughter and a, a suicidal husband with no job. I mean, it would have been tragedy. And again, the people around us and God protected us. He brought us to Christmas. We celebrated Christmas with her in her wheelchair and she was mostly sedated. She was on so much medication. We, I had to fight at this time to get CBD and THC for her. The hospital wouldn't, uh, wasn't allowed to recommend anyone. I had to like go backdoor nurses' conversations. I felt like I was like buying heroin just to get CBD and THC. To and I found a doctor and um, a pharmacist who mailed it to me and then personally delivered. And he came and visited Amelie. He invented a CBD and THC that was G-tube friendly and all this stuff. And I, I believe that provided her with some additional comfort because I was so sick of the narcotics. She was so constipated. I had to disimpact her. We, she was in diapers. She, would only, she could only moan for things. And Brave's like, what the hell's going on? And Amelie's best friend, Asia, was our little angel during this time. And she provided us with so much healing. She would come and sit next to Amelie in her wheelchair and read to her. And we had in-home nursing. And we started the hospice care. And so we had the meetings at home with the doctors and the chaplain and the nurses and the hospital administrators. And then we started doing the, you know, the plans. And she had her sixth birthday. We had a party at my sister's house and all her friends were around and it was pretty special. She couldn't talk or move, but she was in a wheelchair. And that night she started exhibiting some sort of weird signs. And then the next day she started having seizures again. And then we, she had to be taken via ambulance to the hospital and then be intubated again. <laughs> where I was forced to watch, and um, that was pretty traumatic. And more CT scans, and they realized that her brain was just shutting off, not coming back, in fact, getting worse. And it, um, we had to endure another, what, six months of that. But during this time, I was so connected to God and the Holy Spirit and to the people around me. I was thriving, well, and that's when you were doing the blog, the Amelie's Angels yeah. blog, and you were kind of venting through the blog, and so many people were attached to reading that and could feel yeah. feel you and feel her, and you had so many prayers going because of that. And oh, yeah, that's right. Um, there were so many people just praying for her to have comfort and that that i felt it mm -hmm. i felt uh, the energy the love the hope it just filled my soul man i woke up every day just like ready it was because of all of that support mel it was the people coming by the house i would i come home every day there were packages on our doorstep it was the thing, man. It was, I always had something to look forward to every day, not something to dread. And I, there was not a doubt in my mind that Amelie would recover. So I just thought this is, this is the way life was going to be. And I called it the holy life because my only job was to care for her and to care for bravery and to keep my husband, you know, as involved and integrated as I could. He was really involved in a Mighty Oaks at this time, which was helping, but he was still, it was still pretty bad. He was, he was dying with her. He was, despite like his newfound faith and um, 
his best attempts, he was dying right alongside her, whereas I was really thriving. I mean, I felt so connected to the purest life possible, and that is just caring for someone else and then allowing others to care for you. Like that kind of constant symbiotic, um, uh, even flow. And the thing that was causing me the most kind of wasn't even her suffering. I I was blocking myself out to it. My therapist at the time was like, okay, you're in denial. And I was like, no, man, I see it more clearly than you do. Um, And I felt sorry for people who couldn't find the like God's light during that because I could see it. It was real, man. I had never been more connected to God. But the thing that was like really challenging was was my marriage, was my husband's just violent, raging decline. And his soul was like going dark, just like her brain was going dark. And at one point I said, all right, this is enough. Because I walked into her bedroom I could hear her moaning early in the morning and I walked into her bedroom and she had rolled over onto her side and was like face against the wall. She couldn't move. She couldn't even move her hands. She couldn't turn her head. There are so many hard days too that like I remember just talking to you and you were like her feeding tube slipped out or, you know, something would happen. That, or it would get infected yes. or her shunt got would get blocked. There so many or, things um, that... we had to have her on pull socks uh, on because we were worried about her throwing up so much because she would still throw up. Um, we had to find the right feeding to uh, the right food to put in her feeding tube because she was throwing up the hospital prescribed was smelled like vanilla syrup it was disgusting it wasn't natural it wasn't i'm a california girl okay i'm like where are the fruit and vegetables that's the first thing i think of it was so gross the um we would have to monitor her brain swelling by looking at the dent in her head and um the fevers oh oh gosh contracting infection Mm -hmm. she had to be isolated from you know little kids people i knew would bring her joy because we if they had a cold or it was during cold and flu season we had to, so we had to isolate her that was also another form of torture because that child loved people she mm-hmm. loved everyone um anyone could hold her when she was a baby she would let anyone hold her for hours she would fall asleep with anyone i was such so rash, so rare so special and that was another thing that had to to go there are so many details that are frankly torturous um and hard for me to even remember all of because the ones that I focus on the most are so painful that I have that's where my trauma lies. So one of the most special things that I remember from like the final day. I mean, you called mm. me the day before and was like it's not looking good. Yeah. And that was um, July, uh, I'm sorry, June 30th. Mm, Last day of June. Yeah. And uh, it's significant for me because it's during the Operation Red Wing time and Marcus was gone. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was with Morgan and some of the guys. And um, Leslie and I had taken the time to take the kids to the beach. So we were 
out of town and I remember you calling me and telling me, you know, that this, she was just not doing well Mm -hmm. at the time and we were flying home anyway. And then that next morning, Mm -hmm. um, I remember when you had told me that she had passed that boss was holding her and said, um, meet me in the ocean. I forgot about that. (laughs) See, this is why talking about these things, even though it's painful and when I'm in a really happy, happy place, I sometimes avoid it. But then when I get into it, I'm so glad I do. And I'm so glad I don't avoid the discomfort because I'm told these things that I don't, I don't even, I didn't remember that. I forgot. And when, um, we did, you know, when we had the, um, memorial and everything for her, her celebration of life, y'all actually let her ashes into the sea. We w- took a boat out and he swam her out. Yeah, he did. And it was so beautiful. It really was. And you could feel her and you could feel peace and comfort and everything that everyone was praying for. You could feel it and you could see it. In his eyes, you could see it in yours and your family's and everybody was singing and it was just so beautiful. And it was such a great way to not say goodbye to her because there's never going to be a goodbye, but we love you. Yeah. And, you know, you tell me all the time that boss, you know, gets up early and he goes and surfs and it's just one of those things. It's like, of course he does because... He's meeting her in the ocean. Totally. There's so much I could talk about that day. The The general feeling is just one of overwhelming gratitude. It's such a, the, the term is almost cliche, but it's at this point, you know, but that's all I can think of. How lucky am I yeah. to have been there? And God gave, because there were so many times, Mel, where I would walk out of the house, I'd go to spin, I'd go to the grocery store. I'd be like, oh man, she I could she could die while I'm gone. If I go pick up bravery and she goes into cardiac arrest while I'm sitting in traffic, how horrible would that be? It never happened. It didn't happen. So on July 1st, which is the day she passed away, we woke up that morning in bed and we'd uh we had a night nurses at this point. We had night nurses and day nurses around the clock. I had 18 hours of nursing. Another absolute benefit of um, active duty healthcare. I'm so grateful for that. We woke up July 1st. Ben said, happy birthday, JT. And I went, oh my gosh, it's his birthday today. And he said later to me, he said, I kn- that was the day I knew she was going to pass. And... um we spent the whole day at the house, and I became obsessed with Ben finding these two pictures um, of JT holding her. We only have two pictures of JT holding her because he left on deployment mm-hmm. shortly thereafter. Of JT holding her and Ryan Owens holding her. I don't know why. I just was like, you need to find these photos. He's like, man, I don't know where they are right now. I don't know where my hard drive is. I was like, you need to find these photos. So it took him a while. And during that time, I, again, I was in total denial that she was going to die. I didn't think she was going to pass away that day. And I even remember, like, in the moments right before she passed, I was 
I turned to make the bed and then I went, what am I doing? Like, why would you do that? It's so weird how we operate in those moments. And he said, uh, he sent those pictures off to Joy and to me. And I don't know if he sent one to some other people. And he was like, I'm going to lay down for a nap. And he laid down and I looked down at my phone and there was the picture of Ryan Owens holding Lulu. And he's just got this like devilish grin. (laughs) It's really cute. He's so handsome. And he's just smiling at the camera holding her and my first instinctual thought when I looked at this photo was I got her now Mm. she's mine now and that was it she started to pass away and uh, her breathing became slow at that point Ryan Owens was still alive no he died he was killed in action when Amelie was inpatient I got the call from our buddy Bo and Ben flew out to Virginia along with a whole bunch of other people I thought he died in 2016. This was 2017. Yes, you're right. No, no, you're right. It's 2017. And um, yeah, he had to to bury his friend and then come home and deal with his dying daughter. Yeah. Yeah. So this picture of Ryan holding her is like Angel Ryan and then JT holding holding her, kissing her. And then there's another picture of JT holding her and smiling at her. And um, that was my first thought. And then she started to pass away. And that morning I had texted like a group of girls, my, my tribe. And I said, Hey, I want everyone to come over tonight. I want all my, my women over. I want to pray over her and be together and sit in her room because people were coming over all the time. One of the things that I heard so often was, I just want to, can I just come sit next to her? She's so, she's, she provides me so much peace. And I went, really? Cause it was torment to me at this point. Um, so I texted all the girls. I said, come on over. Um, Mindy, I had I texted Mindy, mm-hmm. um, and I texted you know some team wives and my best friends and Emily, which was Emily's who is Emily's godmother. And then so they were coming over as she's like passing away. So some pe- some were texting others like don't just stop, turn around, but mm-hmm. some were already there. And and so there were women there. It, it's amazing again. It's amazing how surrounded I was. Um, with support. So she started to pass. And months before I said to Ben, there was a time we thought she was going to pass. And I said to him, I'm going to ask you for something here. And I, I don't know how you're going to take it, but I'm telling you, like, I'm asking you for this. And he said, what? I said, I want to be the one to hold her when she dies or if she dies. I held her when she came into this world. I should hold her when she leaves it. And I want you to give that to me. That was asking a lot of Ben at that time. It sounds maybe obvious to a lot of people, but he was so in love with that child. He was so connected. He used to take her from my arms when she was crying. I'd be like, excuse me, you don't take a baby from a mother's arms. He's like, give her to me. I got to hold her. I got to hold her. <laughs> so when she's passing away, he said her his goodbyes. And he turned over and he handed her to me. And she's like 65 pounds. I mean, I tore my shoulder lifting her out of her wheelchair. It was... It was she. She was heavy, and she was very swollen and distended because the organs shut down, and your body swells. So she was really like puffy, and her stomach was sticking out, and she was heavy. And he situated me up on the bed, put pillows behind me, and moved her into my lap. And he walked out of the room. It was so awesome. So I got to hold my baby girl during her final breaths, singing to her, just me. And he gave that to me. You know, team guys can be so narcissistic and selfish and self-absorbed, <laughs> but they can also be 
so utterly selfless. And that was an act of pure selflessness. And he walked out of that room, like, liberated. Like, her death was, like, finally had come. Because a month before this, I had begged God, not a month, maybe two weeks. I said, all right, God, the the time has come. I don't want this. I could do this for years. I could care for her for years, and I would love it. This would be my whole job. I wouldn't have to worry about going back to practicing law, which I didn't enjoy anyway. And I wasn't particularly good at it because I didn't enjoy it. I didn't, wouldn't have to think of that. All I could think about was this. This would be my job. I knew I was good at it. I said, but that means her suffering would have to endure. I said, so I'm begging you for mercy and give it all to me. I want all this pain. I want all this suffering. And I want you to liberate her from it. And he did. And he answered my prayers. So Ben walked out of this room closed the door and he saw my niece, Sophie, who was sobbing. The family was in town. And he scooped her up in his arms and brought her into the living room and started comforting her. And Ben, like he was the ultimate before all this and all the trauma, he was the, he had such a light and a spark and energy and every, you just wanted to be around him. He was magnetic. And that was, that had been gone for so long. But in those moments of his daughter's taking his, her last breaths, he was finding his way back to that. I mean, that's redemption right there. Yeah. And I got to hold her. And then the, and then he came in and said, what do you want? And I just refused to let go of her body. And I said, we'll send in the girls, of course. <laughs> so he sent in the girls. And um, Emily, Emily's godmother, my best friend from college, took one look at her. Because your skin, because there was so much fluid, her skin looked translucent when the blood left kind of the life left it and her soul left it and her first words were oh she looks like a mermaid and um they got to say their goodbyes and and then i i could have held her for uh, several days i almost thought about going to the wherever the i don't it's not a morgue wherever they take them the funeral home i almost thought i need i want to go with her and lay with her body but then i thought no because i can't leave brave yeah and I, we brought Brave in, and he didn't want to. He didn't like seeing it. He said his goodbyes, and then he quickly left. And yeah. So my mom and my sister went to the funeral home the next day to look at the, her body. And you know, we're Catholic. That's what Catholic Italian Catholics do. <laughs> I didn't go. I said no. I'm I'm okay. I said, but if but tell me how she looks. Mm-hmm. And we had sent her off, um, and you arranged it. Remember, I called you. I said, when she's going. I, I showed up the next morning did with you? Addie. I can't even remember. <laughs> but you arranged the guys to come to the house. I was like, well, I can't deal with this. I'm not going to be sitting here searching for people to come take my yeah. dead kid's body away. Could you do this for me? Which is a lot to ask of a friend, really. But I knew you could handle it. I knew you would, be, you would always do it right. I have just so much trust in you. So we put like a shirt on her and a little hat and her um, jelly cat stuffed bunny, which she loved, and another stuffed animal, and her favorite blanket. And so they, at the funeral home, my mom took a picture, and she had, I'm not exaggerating, I wish I could share it, a, a little grin yeah, on her face. That. She had a smile. She was at peace. So her burial at sea was was beautiful. We were drinking champagne and 
I wanted it celebratory. I did not want it. Um, I had been, we had been to how many funerals had we been to wearing yeah. black? I couldn't do any more of those. She would have hated that anyway. So would I if it were my funeral. And we put her body in a um, biodegradable, dissolvable, pink seashell-shaped urn. Uh-huh. And, we, and Ben and the guys, I didn't do it. I didn't want to do it. Put her ashes in there. So Ben put it in the water. He swims out. And it's this heavy, serious moment. We had music playing. All of a sudden, the music stops. And all you hear is the sound of the, the lapping water against the, the boat and the breeze blowing through the sails. It's all you hear, right? And it is intense and it is heavy. And Ben gets in the water for one last swim with his baby girl. <laughs> and the freaking urn. The, the, I don't, what do you call those things? I don't even know what you call the seashell wouldn't sink you guys it wasn't heavy enough because she was just a little little girl and it just kept popping right out of the water and i started laughing i was like oh my god she's playing with him in the ocean oh i thought it was hysterical i said this is beautiful and he had to use all his 225 six foot five frame to push that thing down and we could see Wham it. Wham under the water. Like for a minute, everybody was like, is he coming up? Because he went so deep. And, and he could and hold he his breath for so long. swam with her under the water until yeah, there was enough water in there. But. And I remember when we were sailing away, I said, okay, God, please forgive my lack of faith right now. But I like need a sign, you know, because... We switched places, like my hope, my drive, my feeling connected to God. It just died when she died. It didn't die. It went dormant when she died, it felt, but it felt like it was dead. But Ben and I switched places. I said, I need a sign right now, bro. Like, I am, I need something. Within a second, this massive dolphin jumped up right next to me. I thought it was Boss jumping off the boat because that's is something no he does. Lie. I mean, dolphins just started swimming alongside the boat and swam us all the way into port. Yeah, huge dolphins and went right next to me. And I, I didn't even believe it was a dolphin at first. It was so close to the boat. I thought it was Ben jumping into the water because that's and what he does. It was. The sun was setting, and because we were right in the San Diego Coronado area, and it's a military area, two fighter jets fly over. Oh, I forgot about that. And it felt like it was yeah. purposeful, um, which obviously was by coincidence, mm-hmm. but in this instant, you know, what is coincidence? Um, <laughs> there is no such thing. It was just such a beautiful, beautiful celebration of her. and we coasted away looking yeah. at this little seashell still kind of lingering at the surface staring at ben's work beach which was their beach yeah which was where his career started which was where he met yeah. marcus which is there's so much impact for us at this beach and then we got we we got off the boat and i called everyone together and i i know it felt inopportune at the moment but i felt the need to say it and i said i don't want anyone here to walk away from this not remembering how lucky we are that she didn't die from some sort of violent, horrible, she didn't die in, she died in my arms. Like, let's take a moment and recognize how awesome that is. How many mothers who have lost sons in battle would want nothing more than to be holding them 
And I got, I was given that. And JT's mom was never given that. They never even got to see his body, man, because it exploded in the sky. I got to hold that little child's body and kiss it and kiss it and kiss it and, and memorize the details of her face. I feel so lucky. God, even in those moments, just never let go of me. And so when I look back on this journey, you know, the the process of cancer is such a tumultuous journey with incredible peaks and valleys emotionally and logistically and psychologically. And you are uplifted with a rush of monumentous support. And then what happens when you lose a child? That's when the grief really sets in. And that's when people, they have to go back to their own lives. You can't be the center of everyone's world forever. But that is where, for me, like the struggle begins is moving forward with that. And so now the child that I never didn't want to be pregnant with at the time, bravery, John Thomas named after JT is now my light is now the everything God totally knew what he was doing. And it, he is my whole reason for existence in this moment because I can't see far enough ahead. And so I just, again, I'm just feel so blessed by everything that's around me. Do you remember how um, Jess's dream about, about Jess's dream, JT coming to her? Uh Uh-uh. You don't remember this? Okay. So I was pregnant with bravery. I was super sick. I, I, you had flown me out here again, one of the millionth times you've flown flown me out to Texas to wrap me in your arms. And we were going to like a doctor's appointment for you. I think it was an OBGYN appointment for you. You think you were pregnant with um, Addie. And Jess was um, being really weird. And I, was, I couldn't understand why she was being like standoffish with me. Because we have a great relationship and I adore her and I know she likes me. But I looked at her I'm like, what's up? What's going on here? What's, I'm picking up on something. And she's like, okay. I don't know how... To say this, so I'm just going to say it. I'm like, well, for God's sakes, just say it. I can't handle this. She said, I had a dream months and months ago about, and she stopped. And I'm like, about what? It was killing me. I was like, the suspense is killing me. Just tell me what happened. She said, JT came to me in my dream. And it was so real. I woke up from it and told my husband about it instantly. And I didn't know whether I should tell you or not. And she, and she said, I have no idea what it means, and I don't want you to freak out. I was like, what What? What did he possibly say? And she said, he was, sh- like, grabbed my shoulders, and he kind of shook me. And he said, tell Tiggs. I want you to tell Tiggs November. Tell her November. She was like, okay. He's like, I mean it. And he was emphatic with her, right? And stern. He's tell Tiggs no- November. And she was like, I have no idea what that means. And I started crying. And she said, what? Why are you crying? I said, I got pregnant in November. <laughs> and I didn't know about it until Jan- months till January. I got pregnant in November. That was JT's gift to us. You know, I'm, I'll never leave you biddies. He used to say that all the time. So when I look back at how my daughter was born the same year JT died, my daughter was diagnosed the same day we laid JT in the ground, and my daughter died on JT's birthday. How can anyone be- not believe in the connectedness of the brotherhood and the sisterhood and the families that serve together? It's just, and I'm just one, I'm just one story. There's many yeah. more. 
There's many kids named after JT. Mm-hmm. You know, we have Riker John, Asher, um, Asher Thomas, Asher John, Tom, I can't remember, Asher Thomas, and um, Jim Vance's son, Alistair. He's, they're all named after JT. So when all these little boys get together, they've all been like brought together by something that's always been bigger and more important than they'll even know. But that's like the team never quit story, right? Is that you got to look for those things. The universe speaks to us all the time, but are we awake to it? Or am I awake to the blessings that I was given during this cancer battle? Or am I going to be shrouded in grief and pain and suffering and self-loathing and guilt? Or am I going to be awake to the warriors around me who will do anything for us and their sacrifice and God's willingness to do anything for us and his son's sacrifice and that and the wives and their sacrifice and what they've given me and that's that's all I can do every day to move forward and just realize how lucky I am because otherwise you just want to die from pain otherwise it beca- the pain becomes more important and so that's my life's journey moving forward is I want to be the person that like defies what society expects and society expects me to be depressed and kind of like morose and changed. And I want to be the person that says, no, um, go fuck yourself, cancer. You're not going to like kill my spirit along with my daughter's body. Like I'm not going to, I want to find a level of joy that is indescribable and I want to laugh in the midst of suffering. That's my goal. You're doing good. Well, you certainly make it a hell of a lot easier. I can't do it by (laughs) myself. That's for darn sure. Well, I love you. I love you, girl. I (laughs) I just wanted everyone to hear her story because so many people suffer through grief in different ways, whether it's their parent or brother or aunt or uncle or friend or whoever grandmother or child and if you've lived a life you've suffered grief right right and so what do we want to show people we want to show people that grief doesn't own you man yeah if anything it makes everything taste sweet it's like salt if you're just sitting there eating salt by itself it tastes nasty and bitter but you put salt on on food even in baking it brings things to life. And I feel like that's what grief does. It makes everything, it makes your laughing that much more palpable. It makes feeling love. It makes love making. It makes giving. It makes everything better. And you just have to harness its power. And um, it's so, I feel, honestly, I feel like it's easier said than done. Everyone's like, oh, it's easier said than done. No, it's easier than you think it is. It's not it's not harder than you think it is. I feel like we overcomplicate it and we get lost in our own mind. And if we take a step back and feel like the wind in our hair, that's a win for the day. Yeah. My son is, th- is doing well. My husband has found God and is giving back to veterans. He's now retired after 22 years. He made it. He didn't die on the battlefield and he didn't put a gun to his head. And that's a win when you've had nothing but combat deployments yeah. and what he's gone through. And we still have the support of the people around us. And to me, that's like, these are wins every day. Yeah. Drop, drop everything else and we are winning every day. I feel like that, sim- when you simplify a life, it becomes easier to combat grief and pain. All right. 
Thank you. I love you, amore. Love you. So that is definitely a difficult one for me. Um, Tiggs, I love you. Um, Boss, I love you. I have obviously, this has been a close one to me and Marcus because we watched them go through this and uh, on a up close and personal note and to see any kid suffering is unbearable. And you get to a point where you just pray for peace and comfort and love to be blanketed and love and um and to know that that she's in a better place so yeah that that interview was super powerful i mean i haven't cried and i think and since my dad passed away back in 2009 and that interview was really hard for me to you know it was very emotional it was it was amazing to hear her story and just her desire to keep the memory alive and fight for her. It was just, I don't know, it was a special story. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Tiggs, for being on the show. Melanie, thank you so much for hosting this week's episode. Yeah. It was fun. Hopefully we can do this again. <laughs> if you want to be the first to know when we drop a new episode, then you need to make sure you subscribe to the podcast. You can press the purple subscribe button on the Apple Podcast or any other major podcast player to be notified the moment we release a new episode. The show is available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much any other podcast player out there. We've had a ton of great episodes and had some incredible guests along the way, including Miss Taya Kyle, Alexis DeJoria, and Missy Franklin. If you're already following us on Facebook and Instagram, you know that we keep our followers up to date with new gear, sales, guests, events, and tons of other stuff you're not going to get anywhere else. If you're not following us yet, you're missing out. Follow us right now at team underscore never quit. You can also keep up with Marcus at Marcus Luttrell, Morgan at Mojo Luttrell, and me at Andrew Brockenbush on Instagram. And me at Melanie Luttrell. Melanie Luttrell. Melanie Luttrell.